folks, and welcome to our podcast, The People vs. University of California. My name is Kyle Hicks, and in this three-part series, we environmental history students at UC Berkeley will be chronicling our institution's century-and-a-half legacy of environmental injustice. The audio you just heard was from a protest organized by the LaShawn Ohlone leader, Corinna Gold, to free the West Berkeley Shell Mound. More on that in a moment. I'm here with Victoria Stafford and Justin Cataldo, to tell us more about the establishment of UC Berkeley and its early role in abetting westward colonial conquest and indigenous dispossession. Thanks for having us, Kyle. We're excited to be here. Thanks, you guys. Uh, now, we really can't begin to understand UC Berkeley as an institution without understanding the land-grant system. Victoria, could you tell us a little bit more about the land-grant system, what it is, how it came to be, and how it works? The land grant system is essentially this massive investment by the federal government for public higher education through the provision of land parcels all over the country beginning in 1862. Now the story of the land grant system begins with Vermont Congressman Justin Smith Morrill. Most biological sketches paint him to be the quintessential American hero. In 1816, Morrill is born into a working class family and his father as a farmer and blacksmith can't afford tuition to send both him and his brothers. Nonetheless, Morrill is able to pursue a lucrative career selling dry goods. He invests in banking, the railroads, and real estate, and by his mid-30s, he retires as a gentleman farmer. He essentially becomes the personification of Jeffersonian America. We're told that he's cunning and resourceful and civically engaged, and his noble status is derived from his relationship with working the land. Politics then becomes Morrill's second career. The Vermont Whig Party nominates him for the state's second congressional district seat in July of 1854. And though he wins his office by a slim margin then, he's in the House of Representatives just two years later. It's here that he sees an opportunity to give regular working class Americans the kind of education that he and his brothers never had. He fir his first proposal for a people's college comes just three months after taking his seat in the House, and there's a lot of debate about the constitutionality of the proposal and upsetting the always precarious balance of state and federal power. But after years of rejections, he finds that land is one of the most persuasive bargaining chips. So when all is said and done, the Land Grant College Act, or what we now call the Morrill Act, is written to award 30,000 acres of public land per representative and senator to every state for a nationally sponsored state-driven higher education system. And that is the piece of legislation finally signed by President Abraham Lincoln on July 2nd, 1862. So UC Berkeley becomes one of 57 original land-grant institutions born of that law, effectively making higher education accessible to the general public for the first time. That's right, but I want to complicate that narrative a little more. It's not difficult to understand why the story and the way it's told are so appealing to the American imagination. I think for many people, it reads as a testament to the American dream. You've got Morrill coming from a family of humble means. He pulls himself up by the bootstraps and returns as a super successful businessman, a skilled politician, and an ultimately benevolent citizen who fights to expand opportunities for social mobility despite being discouraged by the elite at his time. By extension, the narratives we're often told about the land-grant system is that it's this grand democratization of education. 
That's why they're called democracies colleges to contrast with the more exclusive and elite Ivy League. The land grant system takes pride in quote, the revolutionary idea of educating citizens from all walks of life. While Harvard and Yale were teaching theology and business and law to the upper echelons of society, land grant schools emphasized a practical education in agriculture, engineering, and applied sciences. But historian Margaret Nash provides a more critical outlook. It may be unsurprising to hear that opportunities to study at these institutions still skew towards upper middle class white men. But if the Morrill Act was intended to scale up Jefferson's yeoman farmer ideal, it didn't succeed. What it did do, however, was benefit land speculators and large scale agribusinesses controlled by a privileged few and prepare a white labor force to power American industry and military capabilities. Hmm. So would she say that the land grant system failed? Nash makes a case that the true motivation to establish the land grant system was to further US settler colonialism, a process by which white settlers displaced indigenous peoples and imposed their own political and social systems. Specifically, she calls the land grant system a deliberate project to dispossess American Indians of land because it encouraged westward migration, it dressed education up as a quote, civilizing influence, and by referring to land as empty and vacant and unused, it discursively erased the presence of native peoples. When we zoom out to consider the federal government's broader policy agenda that year, we see that the Morrill Act was signed into law within weeks of two other major pieces of legislation, the Homestead Act and the Pacific Railway Act. Both vested power in the federal government to seize and distribute land parcels, and the Homestead Act specifically promised white male settlers 160 acres of public land. By 1900, 80 million acres of so-called public land was distributed. In this context, it becomes clear that the land grant system needs to be viewed as a means to encourage non-native settlements. Mm. So you're telling me that the land grant system is specifically designed to encourage westward expansion and cultivate American competitiveness on the global stage. And what that means for the United States then is the mass, the mass dispossession of land from indigenous peoples. Exactly. It's not that indigenous dispossession and genocide were unfortunate side effects of delivering a public good. We know that the concept of a nationally sponsored higher education system in of itself was actually pretty unpopular. Arguably the most compelling reason for the land grant system for President Lincoln, for the federal government, and for white settlers was its potential to wipe out native peoples. Wow, uh, I wanna switch gears now to explore the University of California's part in the national story. Justin, what can you tell us about the establishment of UC Berkeley? First, there is the unspoken but obvious truth that all university campuses are on indigenous land. UC Berkeley was established in 1868 on the ancestral and unceded land of the Chechenyo-speaking Ohlone people. But what is less acknowledged is the sheer magnitude of land dispossession. There is a common misconception that Morrill Act land parcels were only used for campuses. But the truth is, land that wasn't used for campuses funded endowment principles. This means that land funding the university was often hundreds of miles away from its actual campus. For example, High Country News reports that UC Berkeley received 2,335 land parcels, some of which were as far north as the California-Oregon border and as far south as San Diego County. Altogether, these parcels comprised nearly 150,000 acres, a close equivalent to the landmass of the city of Chicago or Utah's Zion National Park. 
the sale of these lands generated over $700,000, or a little over $13.3 million in today's currency. And of course, these figures don't take into account the millions of dollars of wealth accumulated in the century and a half since this original sale. The 122 indigenous tribes that resided on these lands have never been compensated. Early last year, journalist Tristan Atone and historian Robert Lee published a database that traces each parcel that the UC received to the spoils of the California genocide. Over 9 million acres of land were seized by unratified treaties from nine tribal nations on June 10, 1851 in contemporary Kern County. UC Berkeley would receive titles to hundreds of acres across the swath of land just over a decade later. 320 acres later awarded to UC were seized by unratified treaty from eight other tribal nations on September 9, 1851 and 40 acres in San Diego County were seized without agreement from the Diageno people in 1852. There are thousands more accounts in the state of California alone. Wow. Uh, so I'm hearing that there's a long and violent history between the state of California and indigenous peoples, and the university has stood to benefit from all of it. Uh, what is the university's current relationship with indigenous peoples? What's important to remember is that the indigenous dispossession and genocide are not relics of the past. Settler colonialism is ongoing. We're simply at a later stage in the process. UC Berkeley still retains mineral rights to some of the original land parcels it received under the Morrill Act over a century ago. And as recently as 2012, the UC Office of the President issued a self-congratulatory statement to honor the legacy of the Morrill Act boasting that 40% of UC undergraduates are first-generation college students and 39% are Pell Grant recipients. This, of course, ignores the fact that Native American undergraduate enrollment at UC Berkeley and across the UC system hovers at less than 1%. Karina Gold, local activist and member of the Lishan Ohlone tribe, spoke last year about how the university continues to disrespect Ohlone ancestors. You see, the institutions in the Bay Area hold my ancestral remains. UC Berkeley has over 9,000 of our ancestors and our funerary objects in its possession. I mean, DBC has uh, our remains at the school. We have every institution probably in the Bay Area has some of our remains there. Our prayer has been to bring these ancestors home and to put them back into the land. But as non-federally recognized tribes, we have no land base. And so what does that mean? Imagine how much land you need in order to lay over 9,000 people to rest. And this isn't just old stuff that's happening. You know, last week I was called into Alameda because there is a big development happening and they're thinking that they might re try to remove 50 to 100 of our ancestors. So this is an ongoing process, a continual genocide and disrespect of our cemeteries. Thank you for sharing this, Justin. Uh, given this history and given ongoing genocide of indigenous peoples in the East Bay, what can students like you and me do? We have to make an intentional effort to educate ourselves, listen to the needs of Ohlone and other indigenous peoples, and then advocate actually advocate for these needs. The sooner we can acknowledge this history and the university's continued complicity, the sooner we can mobilize to hold the university and ourselves accountable. The Sigorite Land Trust is an indigenous woman-led cooperative land trust that is actively facilitating the rematriation of land. Residents of Berkeley can pay 
the Shumi land tax, a voluntary annual contribution that supports the land trust operations. We should also know that right now, the West Berkeley Shell Mound and Village site is endangered. Shell mounds are indigenous monuments made up of shells, bones, ashes, stones, and earth piled several stories high. There, people buried their loved ones, held ceremonies, and spoke to their ancestors in prayer. Once numbered in the hundreds, these monuments have been flattened one by one to make way for urban development, and the West Berkeley Shell Mound is already partially paved over by a parking lot. Again, we need to recognize these events as part of an ongoing genocide and acknowledge that we, as beneficiaries of the University of California, have an obligation to hold the UC Berkeley accountable to the needs of indigenous peoples. Thank you so much, Justin and Victoria. Uh, I wanna thank both of you for taking the time to really go into detail about some of these challenging topics. Um, that wraps up part one and episode one of the people University of California, Berkeley, and we will see you in episode two. This video is under fair use. Copyright disclaimer under section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976 makes for allowance for fair use for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, and research. Fair use is use permitted by copyright statute that might otherwise be infringing. Nonprofit and educational purposes as well as personal use and tips balance the favor of fair use. All rights and credits go directly to the rightful owners. No copyright infringement intended. Please enjoy and thank you for listening.